Good morning. Our uh, text this morning for this Easter Sunday comes from Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Have you ever asked yourself why the resurrection of Jesus matters? For years before I became a follower of Jesus, I heard theories and ideas thrown out about why this may have happened. I think many even those that grew up in the church viewed the story of the resurrection as maybe just the perfect ending to the story of Jesus. That is the next logical thing to happen because he suffered so greatly and died unjustly that it was the next logical piece to the story, right? I asked on social media this past week, why does the resurrection matter? And I got a variety of answers. One person says that it shows God's love and power transcends everything, including death. If I had to sum it up in one word, I'd say love, unfailing love. Another person wrote that the resurrection separates Christianity from every other religion. All the other deity figures are dead. Another person later wrote, if Jesus didn't raise himself from the dead, he would be just another dead guy. He would just be a good teacher and not a savior. And lastly, One person wrote, without the resurrection, all the statements Jesus made range from minor moral truths to the ravings of a heretic and a madman. The C.S. Lewis quote to this end is always a favorite of mine. It is clear, at least from the Facebook wall of a pastor, that many people have a high view of the resurrection. And yet, I know there are many that don't, and there are many that wrestle with it. And I think now more than ever, We need to capture and understand the power of the resurrection because the time we live in is one where we need to be honest about it and honest with ourselves more than ever before. As I preach this message, the room in front of me is completely empty. Church has moved online. Work for many of you, if not all of you, has moved online if you are not considered an essential employee. Many of you have children where their school has moved online or maybe even been canceled for the year. Why? A tiny virus 
only visible under a microscope, has paralyzed entire countries, economies, and governments. If this entire pandemic has brought anything to the surface, it is this. We fear death and do everything we can to control and avoid it. I see people all around me, people I talk to on the phone, people I talk to over uh, FaceTime or Zoom, or I see people on social media, or I see people in the news as I watch it or read it online. We're nervous. We're anxious. Some of us are angry. Some of us are upset. Some of us are scared. Why, though? Because although death is an inescapable reality, For every human being that has ever lived, none of us want to face it. It is there in that fear that I think the story of Luke 24 confronts us and tells us there is another way. There is hope that it doesn't have to be like this. And so as I was processing through Luke 24 and the reality of what the disciples experienced that morning when they went to the tomb after hearing the testimony of of the women, I started asking myself this question, why are we so afraid of death? Every human being that has ever lived is faced with that reality, you will die. So why are we so afraid of it? Consider some of these quotes over the centuries concerning the fear of death. The the Austrian physician and psychologist Wilhelm Steckel said, every fear is fear of death. The great English playwright and politician Joseph Addison said that the fear of death often proves mortal and sets people on methods to save their lives, which infallibly destroy them. I found that one to be fascinating because although he says that we are so fearful of death, so often the very methods that we use to try to preserve our lives are the very things that destroy us. And then there was the American author and self-described agnostic mystic, Robert Anton Wilson, who put it this way, the fear of death is the beginning of slavery. Clearly, we have this profound understanding as human beings that death is terrible, and although it's inescapable, we fear it and are paralyzed by it. I think God in his word has given us a number of reasons as to why that is the case. Why is death so terrible? Why are we so afraid of it? If you go with me back to Genesis chapter 2, we see the first time that death is talked about, and the first thing we see that scripture reveals to us is that one of the reasons we fear death is because death is actually a curse. Look at what God says to Adam, starting in verse 15 of Genesis chapter two. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day you eat it, you shall surely die. 
right? The words that God gives to Adam and Eve is that they are in this paradise, this beautiful world that God has created them and he's placed Adam and Eve in this garden to cultivate and till the land and to rule over it and to have dominion and to enjoy perfect fellowship with God. And yet, if they are to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they will experience the curse of death. And as we see later on in Genesis chapter three, that Adam and Eve succumb to that temptation and sin gives birth to death and makes it an inescapable reality for us all. See, I find it fascinating that even in a culture like ours here in the United States, where many have turned away from a belief in God or at least a belief in the Christian God, there is still an innate understanding that death is not natural. It seems to go against the design of it all. And scripture points to that same truth to us right here in Genesis chapter two, that sin is a product of a human race that has defied God and allowed the curse of death to enter it. And so we fear death because it is a curse because of the sin that has entered the world because of Adam and Eve's rebellion towards God. Now we also fear death, not just because it is a curse, but also this, it is because we deserve it. Paul says in the first half of Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. If we are honest with ourselves, we all realize that we do not behave morally upright all the time. I have spent well close to 15 years now doing evangelism door-to-door and on college campuses and in neighborhoods and with people, complete strangers. And one of the questions I frequently like to ask people when I am uh, inviting them to church and telling them about Jesus is I ask them if they are perfect. And I have yet, in the last 15 years of being a follower of Jesus, have yet to see one person tell me that they are perfect. We as human beings innately know that we are not morally perfect. But when comparing ourselves against others, it seems normal and natural. That, so what if I'm not perfect? Neither is my neighbor, neither is my spouse, neither are my children, neither are my family members. We're all messed up. It's just part of being human. But where we go wrong is that we stop comparing ourselves to God. See, the Bible talks about a holy God who's pure and good, who cannot accept this level of rebellion and sin in his world. Our sins are crimes against the God who created us and earn us our wage, which is death. Now, you may be sitting there, some of you this morning, who are not followers of Jesus and you somehow came across our live stream and thought, hey, I don't have anything else to do. Why not watch this guy? And you may be saying to yourself, I don't know God. How can I be held to a standard that I don't know or believe in? I think Paul gives us great insight into this in Romans chapter two, verses 14 through 15, where he says this, For when Gentiles, these are non-Jewish, non-God-fearing individuals. For when Gentiles who do not have the law 
by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. See, what differentiates humans from every other animal species on this planet is our conscience. And that our conscience was placed inside of us by God, giving us an innate ability to have some semblance and understanding of what right and wrong are. I often like to, when I'm outside talking about the the moral law with someone, is I'll ask them, what differentiates you from that squirrel over there? And we can find a ton of similarities between us and that animal. But the difference being is if that squirrel were to run up and steal your food, it is not going to run back to the tree and then have a, a discussion with other squirrels on whether what they did was morally right or wrong. That squirrel was simply following its instinct to eat, to survive, to make it. But if another human being walked up and grabbed their food off of the table, we would all be having discussions on the moral implications of what that person had done because God has placed inside of us the innate ability to think through our actions and not just to decide the necessity of them, but whether they are morally right and good. John Henry Newman once argued that the conscience supports the claim that objective moral truths exist because it drives people to act morally even when it is not in their own interest. Newman argued that because the conscience suggests the existence of objective moral truths, God must exist to give authority to these truths. Friends, I would tell you this. C.S. Lewis talked about this at length in his book, Mere Christianity, that the law of human nature tells us that we are different from every other species of animal on this planet. And that as we look to our conscience, our conscience either accuses us or excuses us, and that God has placed that there, thereby showing us that he exists and we should be seeking to find him. And if we are honest with ourselves, even without the laws of Scripture telling us when we fail or fall short of God's standards, there is not a one of us that even meets the standard inside of our own heart and conscience. That we all fall short. And the wages of that falling short is death. We know what is right. We just choose not to do it. The third way that I think Scripture speaks to us as to why we fear death is that Scripture actually calls death an enemy. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul spends all of chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians just unpacking the beauty and the importance of the resurrection of Jesus. But he says this in verses 24 through 26. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule 
and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. See, Paul here in 1 Corinthians 15 is speaking to a, a future time when Jesus, who is now currently ruling and reigning at the right hand of God the Father, but is promised to one day return, that one day Jesus will return. And he's talking about as Jesus returns that he will put underneath of his authority and subject to himself various enemies of God. And the final greatest enemy that, that Paul lists there is death. See, death was not a part of God's original design, but was allowed to enter our reality because of the sin and rebellion of Adam and Eve. And subsequently, all of us have gone astray just like our first father, Adam, and have given ourselves over to sin and to the enemy. But death is the great enemy, not just of us, but of God, and God will ultimately put it to subjection. The final way that I think God reveals to us why we are so afraid of death is in Ephesians chapter two. Paul says this when talking about death. He says that death is actually slavery. He says in verse one of chapter two, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You ever wondered what Paul means when he says this? that you were by nature children of wrath. See, sin and death are tools of slavery by the enemy, Satan, used to bind us. This inescapable truth of being a human is that we are all enslaved to our evil desires. Have you ever thought this about yourself? Have you ever wrestled with something and disliked something about your character or who you are or what you're doing and desire to do it no longer and yet find yourself habitually stuck in a pattern where you cannot escape the reality of what you're doing? That you hate something about your character. You hate the decisions you make. You hate the things that you do. You know that they're wrong and yet you can't stop doing them that you've been unable to quit to do so. For me, I remember early on in college, one of the things I realized about myself is that I longed for deep, intimate relationships where I loved others well, and yet I found myself consistently using people for my own gain, for my own glory, and I hated it about myself. I hated that I was self-seeking. I hated that every time I made a friend, if they stopped serving me in some way or didn't do exactly what I wanted them to do, to do, that I would push them away or that I would attack them emotionally or I would attack them verbally. And yet it wasn't until God revealed to me the magnitude 
of the problem was me and not my friends. It wasn't until God declared to me that I was sinful. It wasn't until God offered me freedom from my slavery to sin and death and to live for Jesus that I actually saw true freedom. I tried for years to come up with rules for myself that would allow me to be a better friend, that would allow me to be a better son, that would allow me to be a better family member. And yet I ran back time and time again to the same old evil and wicked behaviors because death is slavery. Every one of us at some point realizes that life has an end, that we are finite. And as we realize that, that should cause us to maximize our time here by loving others well or choosing to do certain things. And yet I find that when we are brought to the reality of the things that we are talking about this morning, death, we're often paralyzed by our own mortality. See, death has this weird way of paralyzing us in one of two ways. It either paralyzes us the way that it paralyzes one of my uncles, but that the very thought of death causes him to recoil in fear that he didn't even attend his own father's funeral. Or it causes us to be paralyzed in another way that we live so crazily as if nothing matters here on this world because all is fleeting and we should try to do as much as we possibly can and forget everyone else. See, as scripture reveals to us the reality of death, it also reveals to us our own sinful tendencies in responding to that own finite ending. But does it have to be that way? Is God unaware and unable to do anything about the wickedness that death has brought into the world? Is God unaware and unable to free us from the slavery that death has put us under? Are we unable to respond when we look at it? And the answer to that is a resounding no. As a matter of fact, our own unease with death, in my opinion, indicates to us that we realize something is wrong and we should look to find the solution. Have you ever thought that one of the reasons you are so paralyzed by death, the reason we look at this current pandemic and outbreak sweeping across the world around us and we hate everything we see is exactly the way we should respond to it. But are we responding the way that we should? Have we found the true solution? Guys, I would submit this to you. Scripture presents to us a lot of bad news about the reality of death. It also presents to us a lot of really good news. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus have to die? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, Paul says this, For I delivered to you 
as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Guys, Jesus died because it was God's plan all along for Jesus to suffer the crucifixion. I said earlier that death was what we deserve. It's the wages for our sin and rebellion and treason towards God. And yet God had a plan that death was not going to be the final say for our actions. See, what Paul is sharing with us here in 1 Corinthians 15 is that although you and I are separated from God because of our sin and rebellion. God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, as an act of mercy to die in our place for our sin and rebellion. And that as Jesus went to the cross to die and suffer the wages for our sin, he in turn gives us his righteous standing before the Father. And in that righteous standing, he's going to offer us new life. But do you know how God is able to promise us and offer us that new life? In the resurrection of Jesus. That Jesus didn't just die to suffer the penalty for God's sin, but God, for our sin towards God, but that God raises Jesus from the dead to prove to us that God has accepted his sacrifice once and for all. One of the things I frequently remind our church is that the final words of Jesus as he hung from the cross are, it is finished. And he is not referring to his life. He is not referring to the breath in his lungs. He's referring to the wrath of God being fully satisfied and paid for once and for all in his death. And guys, we celebrate this morning, this Easter morning, that when the women went to the tomb to honor Jesus because they loved him, that tomb was empty because God had fully accepted that sacrifice and raised Jesus Christ from the dead to rule and reign. And he now sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, ruling and reigning. And one day, every knee will bow to Jesus. One day, every tongue will confess Jesus as Lord. And for eternity, for those that are in Christ, we will worship him, singing hallelujah, and worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is he to be worshiped. Worthy is he to be honored. Worthy of honor and glory. No other name but Jesus. In the resurrection, God once and for all destroyed death and it no longer has any say. As Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, Timothy, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of the, about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. 
and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Death is destroyed. Don't be ashamed of that. Do not be ashamed and worried about COVID-19 or cancer or car wrecks. That we live in such a way to not flaunt and not care about death, but we know ultimately death has no say because it has been destroyed for those who are in Christ. Not only did God destroy death in the resurrection of Jesus, but he also once and for all destroyed Satan's power over us through death. He says this in Hebrews chapter 2. Verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Because Jesus rose from the dead, you and I are delivered from fear of death and from slavery to it. And subsequently, slavery from the one who put it in place in the first place, Satan himself. And lastly, in the resurrection, God destroyed sin's power to separate us from his love. He says this in Romans 38, Romans 8, 38. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor present things, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus died. Death is destroyed. Satan is destroyed. And death has no power. Because on Easter morning, the tomb was empty. Friends, here is the reality. I deserve death. You deserve death. We deserve death. Our sin is comparable to cosmic treason. Guys, the reality of what the Bible calls sin is it's not just bad things. Sin is an affront to the power and sovereign rule of a holy God and creator. It attempts to usurp his authority. It attempts to say to him, you don't matter. And it says to him, get out of here. We're in charge, not you. And yet the resurrection 
is God's declaration that my sin and the power of death will not have the final say. Luke 24 declares to us, sin is fully dealt with. You can be assured of your salvation in Christ because Jesus rose from the dead. And death is no longer our destination if you are in Christ. Sam Albury puts it this way, raising Jesus from the dead was not an arbitrary stunt. It wasn't a mega miracle to prove he's still there and that he's still bigger. The resurrection is the outworking and proof of our salvation because death is the outworking and proof of our sin. And so friends, here's my question to you this morning. Do you know Jesus? Do you know him? Do you know the resurrected Jesus that I speak of? The one whom in Luke 24 had been in the ground for three days. And as his followers came to mourn and visit him that Sunday morning, the grave and tomb were empty. Friends, the greatest story that has ever been told was this, that although you and I created in the image and likeness of God, were given an opportunity to love, honor, and worship him and rule and have dominion over the earth in a way that would bring honor and glory to our creator, we all fall short of the standard that God laid before us. Starting with our first father, Adam, and every human being that has ever walked this earth ever since then, We've fallen short of the glory of God because we've chosen to do things our own way, live life our own way, and to dishonor God and place ourselves on the throne of this universe instead of God who rightfully deserves that place. And in that sin and that treason and rebellion, we've spit in the face of God and told him, go away, I want nothing to do with you. And yet we know that the outworking and wages of that decision is death. And so we look at death and we fear it the same way that scripture says we're going to or the very things we looked at this morning, that we fear that death, it paralyzes us. It calls us to, us to shelter in and refuse to interact with people. It causes people to get into fights in grocery stores because people don't cover their mouth when they cough. It causes us to yell and get angry at government officials because we don't have proper protective equipment in place. It causes us to go crazy as we watch the economy crumble around us because we fear death. And yet we all face it. And yet because God is loving, because God is merciful, because God is long-suffering, death will not have the final say. And so some 2,000 years ago, God sent his only son, born of a virgin Mary, into the world. And his name was Jesus. And Jesus lived a perfect life. He's the only person who has ever lived and fully followed what God would command in one of him. And Jesus at the end of about three years of public ministry, declaring to the world that the kingdom of God was at hand, was handed over to sinful men and put to death wrongfully on a cross. But Jesus said leading up to that time that he would be handed over to these wicked men, but that they were not taking his life from him, that he was willingly giving it up because it was the plan of the father to have him suffer and die in our place for your sin and for mine. And that as Jesus hung from the cross, he was paying the penalty for every sin 
that you and I would commit both past, present, and future. And satisfying the wages and wrath of, of, uh, that we deserved from God. The righteous judgment of God the Father for our rebellion was being satisfied in Jesus' death and suffering on the cross. And as Jesus was buried, Satan thought he had won a great victory. And that's why not just Easter morning, but every day here at Aletheia Church, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus because Jesus rose from the grave. Death was defeated. Our sin was paid for. And in that, God extends to me, God extends to you, and God extends to the world that anyone who would accept and believe upon the name of Jesus through repentance and faith is adopted and invited into God's family and that death has no sting, but once and for all, we are forgiven and adopted as sons and daughters of God the Father, that we are his, and that when we are his, we can worship him, that we can be born again, that Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that we are made into new creations. Jesus once said to the the Pharisee Nicodemus, that we must be born again, that in Christ we are new creations. And Jesus' resurrection proves to us that that salvation has finally been accomplished and is extended to us by God the Father. And the invitation is given to all of us to simply look at your life be honest with yourself, to be honest about your own moral failings in light of a holy God, to repent, to agree with God that you're a sinner and ask him for forgiveness. And the promise of God the Father to us in Christ is that Jesus paid the penalty for that sin and that you and I are forgiven if we have accepted and believe in Jesus as our Lord. Jesus' resurrection proves to us that sin once always led to death, but that cycle is now broken. New life is offered. Sin has been defeated. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the greatest event in human history. And for those who are in Christ, it brings about some of the greatest promises. Jesus promises in John chapter 5, verse 24, that believers will never taste death if they have trusted in him. Paul promises in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, that believers are reconciled to God. Where you and I were once enemies of God the Father, we have now had restored fellowship and friendship. We are a family restored. And Galatians 3.13 promises to you and I that the curse of the law and of sin has finally been removed. Friends, on this Easter morning, I want you to leave knowing this. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ means victory over death. Stand firm in that victory if you are a believer. And if you are not a follower of Jesus, make that decision today 
to stand in Christ, to allow Jesus to take on the penalty of your rebellion so that you can stand in that victory as well. Let nothing move or shake you because death has been defeated. Death is dead. God has won. Believe in Jesus and worship him. Let's pray. God, I thank you that the promise of your empty tomb is that death is dead. That you promise in Revelation one day, all those who are in Christ Jesus will be raised from the dead and live again eternally with you. And that we will be for eternity, worship, worshiping Jesus. Worshiping our great God and King, the one who made a way when there was no way. Father, I pray that all of us this morning would have a renewed sense of the beauty and the power of the empty tomb. that for those listening this morning that have never worshiped and fallen down and confessed you as Lord, that they would do so. And for all those that already do confess and know you as Lord, that they would be wrecked afresh of the reality of your life, death, burial, and resurrection. And may it cause and stir in all of us a greater worship of Jesus because he is worthy. Father, thank you for your plan. Jesus, thank you for giving your life and, and raising again. And Holy Spirit, thank you for empowering his ministry and for keeping us as a sign and seal of that salvation. God, we love you. We praise you. And we ask this all. In Jesus' name.